it's useful to see things separately, but really they're so intertwined, those branches, that any one of them kind of circles back to the other. We're going to have to demonstrate somehow and network how the landscape and the water and other elements in our built environment around us are being transformed through children's questions. There's a way that children listen to stories, especially stories that have the weight of traditional tellings behind them, that it's just a different quality of attention that they're paying. Hello, and welcome to the Earthy Chats podcast, where we're cross-pollinating environmental education ideas. I'm one of your hosts, Jade harvey Beryl. I'm joining you as the Outreach and Events Manager for the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network, or CBEAM, and the Outdoor Learning Store which is your one-stop shop for outdoor learning, equipment and resources. I also run Stoked on Science. It's an environmental education and consultancy business based in the interior mountains of BC. And I'm your other host, Ian Shanahan, the general editor of Green Teacher, an environmental education charity that produces a quarterly magazine, books, webinars, PD, and the podcast, Talking with Green Teachers. Let's get started. Enabling the children to sort of, rather than sort of going along a linear path of, of unfolding a topic, just kind of branching off in, in all these diverse ways and, and asking questions that kind of connected, but maybe, and not, not sort of shutting down questions that are maybe not where you as an adult expect, you would, would want them to be if you were just sort of stuck in preconceived ideas of how a child might approach a topic. So even today, I was I was challenged by some. Welcome to this edition of Earthy Chats, where we're cross-pollinating environmental education ideas. Uh, and today, joining us are two very special people. They are the co-authors of Natural Curiosity. It's the second edition, and this is a resource for educators, uh, and it talks about the importance of Indigenous perspectives in children's environmental inquiry. So two authors um, joining us today is Doug Anderson. Uh, Doug Anderson is Métis and he grew up closely connected to with the Rideau River in the Ottawa Valley. He's lived in Toronto for over 30 years. He's one of the founders of the Nard Maggot K group or NKG, uh, which works to restore indigenous responsibilities to the land and water in Toronto. The NKG is working with urban indigenous people, planting medicines, mound gardening, fighting invasive species, and supporting indigenous cultural learning on land in the city. Doug also divides his time between invert media and PhD studies in indigenous education at York University. Our second guest today is Julie Comey. After teaching at the Lab School and in Toronto Public Schools for over 20 years, Julie joined the faculty at the Dr. Eric Jackman Institute of Child Study, where she currently teaches in its graduate education program. As a researcher and practitioner with a strong interest in curiosity, imagination and children's play, Julie has collaborated with teachers, researchers and community members to design and implement playful, engaging and culturally relevant approaches to literacy and math in Ontario elementary schools. Her work in Indigenous communities in Northwest Ontario opened her eyes to new perspectives and possibilities for working with children as they engage in the natural world. A Fond welcome to both of you. Hello. Hey, hey. Hi. Hello. And so starting with Julie, I wonder, can you share a little bit more about your own relationship with the outdoors or an environmental learning? Uh, you know, did you grow up uh, outdoors all the time? Is this an integral part of your land uh, life or did it come to you a little later? So it's interesting. I mean, I grew up I was an urban child of two very urban parents. We lived always in the heart of downtown Toronto, long before it was fashionable. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, like we had immense freedom to roam the, the urban streets. So we'd hop on our bikes and we'd, you know, join the gang. And, you know, vacant lots were heaven 
for us. So we would find all the places that we could kind of call our own. And it was nature. I mean, sometimes we got into a lot of trouble. We would, you know, <laughs> stumble into wasps' nests and things like that. I remember that vividly. And get up to all kinds of things that I think our parents would have been horrified had they known. But I think that freedom was a big part of my relationship to the natural world, where, you know, we found things that interested us and um, went with it. At the same time, you know, as a kid, we went camping. We spent summers camping. And we collected, we had a house full of stuff that we had brought in from outside. And in those days, I think people didn't worry so much about the environmental implications of it. But we had, in, including live animals of all sorts. There were, we had snakes, we had insects, we had, you know, reptiles, which eventually went back where they had come from. But I remember my sister as a very, like a six-year-old, bringing our, we had a garter snake that had just had babies and she she was so entranced that she put them in her pocket and brought them to school. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Which might not have gone down well with everybody. Um, so, you know, it was, we had, the, you know, every surface was covered with stones and feathers and shells and whatever else seemed interesting, bones. And the other, my only, my other experience was my mother had come as an immigrant during the Second World War from France. So we would go and spend many summers in France and my uncle was, I just, I remember being kind of awed at the way he read the landscape. We would spend time at my grandmother's house in Normandy in the countryside. And he would take us mushroom hunting, for example. And, you know, I still know the mushrooms by their French names more than their English names. Or, you know, when the farmers would plow their fields, because this was Europe, they would turn up a wealth of Paleolithic stone tools, which we would find, and he knew all about that. So I do just have these sort of memories of what it was like to be kind of in the land with somebody who really knew it so intimately. And to, yeah. to have an exploratory relationship, it sounds like. Exactly, yeah. Fabulous. Um, and then, you know, when I had kids of my own, it was a new chance to kind of live this life again. That's beautiful. Um, how about you, Doug? Are you a stone collecting, feather collecting? <laughs> uh, well, I, I, so my dad's family is from Manitoba, um, uh, sort of middle of Manitoba, uh, Reedy Creek and Kinnesota, these small communities, small Métis communities. And when uh, the 50s and 60s came along, they sort of got out of there. It was hard to find work uh, if you were indigenous. So they came east, some of them came east. And my oldest uncle moved out to the country sort of on the outside of Ottawa. And my uh, my dad and mom and my sister and I lived in an apartment building until I was seven. And then we moved out near my uncle and aunt. And uh, that changed a lot of things for me. I mean, we had the kind of freedom that Julie's talking about within the city, um, but the apartment building was right on a major sort of almost a highway, a four lane, busy four lane street. And then when we moved to the country, it was just a mind blowing experience for a seven year old. And I was there till I was, I guess, 18, I left home. And, you know, that my dad and my uncle were, they missed growing up in the country. They missed living in the country. And so we were lucky enough to have that growing up and ended up in Toronto, which is a huge city. And we were going to leave in 2012 and ended up just having too much work and our son got into school. And uh, at that point I decided I was going back to the land. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was my midlife crisis. I went uh, onto sites in the city of Toronto that there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, forests and sort of ravines, um, rivers. And I've been sort of out there ever since working in closer and deeper relationships with the land here than I've ever been able to really. So that's my connection, I guess, to, to, yeah, why I'm outside. I, I missed it. And even in the city, I'm finding ways to do that. That's quite an amazing thing. I think some people feel 
disconnected from nature when they're in urban spaces or highly populated, densely populated spaces. And actually, if you go searching, um, yeah, you can find all kinds of things can be revealed. Yeah, it's actually great to hear this because I teach, um, you know, teachers who are people who are going to be teachers and they often say, well, this sounds fine, but what if you're, you know, what if you live in downtown Toronto? What if you're in yeah. school in downtown Toronto? And I say, it's everywhere. Mm. It's actually a hop and a skip away. Have a um, look in the cracks of the sidewalk or the yeah. bits and, of, <laughs> you know, and bring the kids on the subway for free now. And you can, you know, you can go anywhere. That's excellent. Um, so Doug, so you both co-wrote this book. It's the um, second edition, and Lorraine Chiarato wrote the first edition. Can can you tell us what natural curiosity is, um, um, and why you wrote a book about it? Well, I so I was invited to help. <laughs> I think that the the word we were using at the time was to help indigenize this this resource for teachers. And my strong feeling is that. Um, it's not possible to, you know, whatever that means, if, if, if you're going to do it in any meaningful way, first of all, you have to know which nations you're talking about, um, which are, you know, culturally distinct and specific, depending where you live. And I was aware that this was an, a, a, a resource for diver- people in diverse parts of North America, mostly, but elsewhere as well. And so I had to look at this pan-Indigenous kind of um, approach, mainly uh, having grown up in Ontario, I have I've had the benefit of spending a lot of time with Anishinaabe people in, who are one of the main nations in this part of the world. And so I was informed by that, but also trying to, to say, how does that actually correspond with what other people may be wanting to do in other parts of the country or the, or the continent or the world? And so I made very clear very early on that I didn't want to indigenize the book. It would be, that would be, I think, to, confusing and muddling and taking away from the important work that was already sitting there in, in a very important document. And I said, let's put a lens beside this and try to um, open a perspective into what these innovative teachers are doing and uh, these sort of researchers are doing in ways that invite uh, a conversation that can be deepened on the ground by people who are exploring what, the, what, what it means, what environmental inquiry means in relation to all the things that you know, many educators are now starting to grapple with. So they're doing land acknowledgements in, in a lot of you know, parts of Canada, for example, and in the States, I believe. And that means something, uh, but often teachers don't know what it means. And so the idea of this lens sitting alongside the, the branches of this, this book was to challenge people to start to think differently, think more deeply. Um, it's not prescriptive. It's really an opening kind of it's opening a door I'd like to I'd like to describe it that way into a conversation now you know natural curiosity is it corresponds with uh, certain indigenous values and the and the idea and not just indigenous you know they're they're present in other cultures but the idea that uh, a child uh, has (laughs) a way of engaging with the world around them that we often lose as we as we enter into adolescence and sometimes even earlier than that and it's related to what's in their heart and to how they're feeling and to how they're um, experiencing the world around them in a i, I don't want to say it all these english words like visceral and kinetic um, are neglecting sort of the spiritual aspect of it uh, certainly it's vis- visceral and kinetic but it also involves a real deep feeling that I would describe as spiritual. And certainly the, the Anishinaabe perspectives on learning are so radically different than what we're trained to, to think of, of learning and knowledge as that I, I, this is me. I mean, I would assert that they, in some regards, they see it as coming from a, a completely different place than, than the way we're accustomed to think of knowledge and learning. So usually we think of it as something as, that humans accumulate. Um, whereas that's certainly present in indigenous cultures that I'm aware of, but there's a much, <laughs> much different addition to that, or, or actually the, and something that precedes that, I would say, uh, in importance. And that is that knowledge is gifted, it flows, 
um, from the world around us, something we can observe certainly in the world around us in the natural world, but which originates in realms or worlds that extend beyond the one that we perceive spiritually. So that's, so when, when I was invited to sort of look at what, what this book, I, I, I sort of looked at it and thought, oh my, this is amazing work. This is, this is people who are clearly making connections with indigenous cultural values or ways of looking at learning. And the task seems to me to be to deepen the, the sense of what that, what the implications of that are without being prescriptive and to then see what, what happens when people uh, pick it up and start to sort of ask themselves questions about it. The teacher's stories, I think, that were written concurrently with the, the Indigenous learns. And yet, when you read the whole thing, I think you can see some of the things that are implied in that Indigenous lens unfolding with, with some of these teachers. There's some clear examples. And it's beautiful to, to tap into that spirituality. As a scientist, I actually encountered many people in the world who are scientists and spiritual spiritual people. They're not mutually exclusive. But for example, if you Google the definition of geology, um, and I study fossils or that was my specialist subject, um, it's the study of non-living things. And I just, I just inherently disagree with that, particularly having lived uh, here for the last seven years and learning from um, primarily the Sinaiqst and the Tanaha people here about the soul and the living energy within all, all, all things. And so uh, books like this that, that connect um, the, the two-eyed seeing, you know, the way of, of connecting uh, approaches to to learning and gifts the gifts of nature i it's a it's a really special uh thing to share and the book um as you read it you you feel this wave of of connection i think uh as you go on julie did you um research natural curiosity itself or was that something that was just like sort of evident and then you ran with it so i had like the very nice situation of having this wonderful book that had been created already by Lorraine. So there was a structure there. Otherwise I could have, I could have probably spent six years agonizing about how to structure it. So working with that structure was very, very interesting. And there were kind of, it seems to me we were talking a lot in an ongoing way with Doug, for example. I mean, I, I remember a lot of conversations where we just kind of were trying to get a handle on, explore kind of where the point, like points of connection and also equally interesting are points of kind of disjunction between the two general worldviews. And in a way to talk about Western perspectives as something monolithic is probably as misleading as to talk about indigenous perspectives right. that way, you know. Um, and, and even just the term Western or European really misrepresents, I think, where a, a lot of the origins of where, where science comes from or the science as we Absolutely. teach in schools. The Middle but, East. Um, <laughs> Yeah, India, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, but um, I think what was also interesting, though, is, I mean, many, as Doug talks about the teacher's stories in the book, very few of them explicitly mention Indigenous perspectives. I think if we were to do a third edition or solicit new stories, that probably would have changed by now. But at that time, and yet, as he says, there's so many, you read Doug's chapters and you read these stories and you can see, oh, look, this, this is kind of what they're doing. So that's very nice. I kind of like the implicitness of it and the lack of forcing it into a mold. And, and but once we once once we took this kind of overall approach of really it being a conversation between these two general kind of bodies of ways of thinking, then it also we realized that lots had changed since we had written we I mean since Lorraine had written the first but I was 
I was teaching at lab school at the time, since that first edition had come out. And lots in, had changed in the world, but lots had also changed in the school and the way we thought about things and the way we thought about the natural world, which I think when we first, the first edition was written, the school and the teachers were in very early stages of bringing this kind of inquiry approach into the natural world. And, you know, so there were things that needed rethinking, things that needed amplification. Inquiry had become such a buzzword, too, that it just felt, I mean, it just felt necessary to kind of redetermine what the parameters were that we were within which we were operating. So it was kind of cool. I mean, Doug was there writing his lenses. I was there in a way commenting, writing commentary on what was already there. And um, it was nice how it came together. It comes out beautifully. And I just have to say that it feels very unifying. And I also love that you talk about the fact that this is not like, it's not possible to give Indigenous perspectives in a book that, you know, are encompassing or um, it, it's just a, like you said, opening a conversation that enables um, better communication. I think it's amazing. Hello, listeners. This is Ian. I'm just here to let you know about the Talking with Green Teachers podcast, produced by Green Teacher. If you don't know who Green Teacher is, we are a registered charity in Canada serving environmental educators in Canada, the U.S., and overseas. For only $32 a year, you can subscribe to our quarterly magazine, which has been running in North America since 1991. All proceeds go back into the organization to help us enhance environmental literacy among young learners. For more information, check out greenteacher.com. You can find Talking with Green Teachers wherever you get your podcasts. I think this is a great opportunity to get into the branches themselves. Julie, you mentioned about adding some structure and those branches very much give the structure as they do with a tree. And starting with Doug, can you just sort of walk us through each of the branches as well as the accompanying indigenous lens for each one? Yeah, I can, I can try. <laughs> you have four hours, it. go. I've got, I've got the book well, right here. Well, I, I want to emphasize a few things because, yeah, it's it's a big book. And um, so it, when it comes to the first branch uh, and when we're talking about uh, lighting the fire, um, which is a symbol that certainly in this is part of the continent for indigenous people, the, the fire is uh, represents a, a lot. So it, rep, it does represent what's in us, what the spirit of, of everything and mm -hmm. um, our connection to everything. Um, I mean, really oversimplifying, but that's the, the broad feeling. And right. when we were talking about inquiry-based learning, uh, I chose this because this idea of lighting, lighting the fire, because in the indigenous, certainly in the, in the indigenous perspectives on knowledge that I'm familiar with, and I'm not familiar with all of them, obviously, because knowledge in so many ways can exist independently of human thought and origin we're recognizing something in in a human being in a child that is kind of sparking and the way that in the first edition that people were describing this uh, really resonated with this idea for me of how uh, a child is having a fire lit inside of them and it's not something that we can do as as teachers or adults or parents even uh, mm -hmm. So much as something that exists naturally, something that is inevitable, unless there, there's some serious impairment. And so what I was getting from, from this, um, and my background was, has for, for many decades has been in, uh, working with youth and adults. So it wasn't with elementary children. But I was watching it happen, happen with my own son at the time. And, and so that first branch, when it looks at following a child's natural curiosity or in, in questions that are coming up in relation to uh you know a facilitated we have to we have to somehow structure it right what really excited me and this was what really got me going to 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 be inspired to actually yes i think i can do this was 
that the teachers and the approach that they laid out in the first edition were actually saying, we're taking direction from something that kind of transcends or deeply inheres to reality. It's coming from a mysterious place. And so that was the corresponding connection for me in the first, in the first branch. And, you know, I could talk about that forever. Um, <laughs> but, but what was important, I think, was that in our, you know, diverse cultures from this part of the world, but also um, from other parts of the world, the modern way of looking at, at the universe and, if, at, and at everything, including people, is to kind of break it into false dichotomies. And so, oh, you know, ind indigenous people often get labeled as being animists. And, and so because we see uh, some kind of life and spirit uh, and spark in everything around us, um, that, that, that means we're not, we, you know, we're opposed to monotheism. And then monotheists are somehow opposed to animism. And I mean, they're just do two different aspects uh, of one reality. Um, and if, if you go deep into any tradition, you find that. And so with the children in a, in, in a modern school system, what I, what I found so exciting about this idea of inquiry-based learning is that you're actually recognizing that there's, I, and they didn't ex explain it in this way, but this is how I was seeing it and trying to link it to the indigenous lens. You're seeing it, a, a field of inspiration that's endless. And it, it, it was kind of, you know, when the first time I looked at it, I picked it up, I was seeing what they're, what they're talking about and feeling out is, how do we not so much, and again, I don't want to oversimplify it and say there's no structure and no facilitation of learning, because there is, but how do we access this and this bottomless pit of, of excitement and, <laughs> and curiosity um, and inspiration and, and just when you see them, you know, <laughs> gathering around a question um, and you give them the freedom to do that, there's a lot of energy. It's like a yeah, nuclear it's magic. bomb. It's magic. Thermonuclear, yeah. And so I, I, I saw that, and I was like, "This, this is what the first branch is about." It's, it's, it's somehow these teachers who are all, you know, leading good teachers, are recognizing this enormous energy and saying, "My gosh, you know, like we've been uh, in in modern education too often. Not, you know, any good teacher doesn't do this, but too often systemically kind of constrained into these pathways of learning that." yeah shape this energy into into something manageable um, and um you know the reality is of course if you're one person with 30 small children i mean i you know i'll guest guest with children for for two or three hours and i'm exhausted right so <laughs> yeah that's me too i give you know, them you back to, yeah, yeah you have, you have to manage you still have to manage and structure that energy obviously and and also <laughs> impose discipline somehow but but still these people were who are writing this and, and who are doing research and what works, we're saying that you, 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 you have to unleash this energy. So for me, the first lens just logically, logically connected with this um, enormous uh, spiritual power. And then, you know, on that basis, it, the natural curiosity branches just unfold in a very, well, natural way. And so when we talk about going out into the world and spending time and the world you know the the word that i use in the book is akinomage so it you know if we did a sort of a, a not a very deep dive and translated it in a shallow manner it just means taking direction from the land or the earth but the, the definition of ake of the earth is is actually everything at every level through all time and beyond space and so on and so when that second branch, when I looked at that, I was seeing how, you know, when they, when they are teachers and, you know, Julie can speak with, with more in, um, kind of knowledge about, about the, the, the first edition. But my impression was that what we were really looking at was a need to have a relationship with everything that we're, we often don't have the freedom to, to, to have. And that can be our relationships with other people. It can be relationships with everything around us. It can be relationship with the billboard. So when we were talking at the beginning of this, you know, little podcast about being in the middle of the city, um, it doesn't have to be in a, in a, in a natural environment. Um, we can have relationships with, with everything. And I mean, it, <laughs> the idea that this relationship or this range of ways of, of deepening how we 
uh, interact with the world and make connections. What I was seeing in, in the sort of research that, that informed this was people making knowledge maps, for example, and really enabling the children to sort of, rather than sort of going along a linear path of, of unfolding a topic, just kind of branching off in, in all these diverse ways and, and asking questions that kind of connected, but maybe, and not, not sort of shutting down questions that are maybe not where you as an adult expect you would, would want them to be if you were just sort of stuck in preconceived ideas of how a child might approach a topic. So even today, I was, <laughs> I was challenged by some children's questions that <laughs> for me were difficult to relate back to, you know, the theme that we're supposed to be centering ourselves on, but it's related. And so this way of moving into the world uh, that enables us to, I think I call that chapter putting down roots. It, it enables us to, to really sit with it and interact with it. Was again, again, to me, that's an indigenous value. And, you know, the difference, the advantage we've had if we're, if, you know, coming from indigenous families or communities is that, you know, all the ge genocide and trauma aside, there are still people who hold millennia, uh, millennia worth of knowledge that's incredibly deep for one place. Um, so sitting in that place, I, th I think that second branch, kind of the biggest challenge was how does this urge to, to reach out to the world and around you and spend time with it, you know, begin to interact with Indigenous knowledge? Because... Um, if you don't, you're missing something. But if you do, you're sort of jumping in after a, a century of uh, uh, people in North America, certainly attempting to obliterate it. And so the, the lens on that branch had to be very, I mean, poor Julie and the, and the rest of them were just wait. They're very patient with me. But I was like, how do I put this, how do I put this perspective into this book? Uh, without sort of encouraging people to rush out um, to, you know, to the nearest reserve and start pestering everyone who, you know, who's, <laughs> we're all emerging from a hundred years of trauma. And, and so the, the challenge was to say, what, what, what are we going to do to deepen this sense of the world around us where we are? And that all leads into the third branch, which has to do with integrating knowledge. Um, meaning um, if we've done this, if we've gone through this process of, of kind of giving ourselves the freedom to explore these, these, this enormous burst of energy on, uh, in relation to what's around us, it, it, there's no subject stream that we cannot enrich and build on. And, you know, we've all been to school um, and have that, well, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I can't tell you what I learned in most of my, um, my school <laughs> days, um, right up to and including relatively recent stuff you know reading Derrida in, in graduate school um <laughs> yeah don't get me started but yeah that, that um I mean what does that have to do with learning that's that's de any knowledge that can be socially deconstructed isn't real knowledge from an indigenous point of view that's my personal however that third branch of that way of of saying we we can actually structure learning in ways that meet the, the diverse streams of knowledge that were required to address in, in the curricula, the, the curriculum frameworks that were given, is a really strong idea. And this is the one that I want to test. And I'm not testing it alone. I'm doing this in my research, but I know other people are doing it. But I really want to see how teachers who aren't in a lab school, for example, over time, um, actually are able to make this balance. I mean, they're still in these systems, right? And they have to they have to um, have certain ways of affirming that a child is going is, is not going to be stricken with panic when they go into grade nine math. Now, I think it's pretty, pretty easy. I'm not the expert in this, Julie is, but it's pretty, pretty demonstrable, I think, that children who do go through a similar process to what we've looked at, been looking at in this book, I think they do very well. Um, but I I'm personally want to see sort of how a lot of these subject streams on the ground for myself, I'm playing with that. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm doing that. The final branch, of course, it has to do with applying all of this and moving in the world and sustaining uh, what's around us. And if we've done it right, I mean, I've sort of spent so much time on the first three. I just want to say quickly <laughs> that if we've done it right, um, I think 
what we're actually doing is unfolding uh, uh, learning activities over time. And it's, it, we have to be gentle with ourselves and understand that we're not going to apply these ideas in this book or in any book in a year. Uh, we're going to have to slowly build them uh, as educators. And it's, it's building a different kind of education than the ones, the, the sort of this, the one we've been used to. And that's not easy. So what that final branch for me means is applying this. And this is also an area that I'm really hoping to explore in the next few years. And it's saying to adults who are in the vicinity of a school, um, you know, with all the all due diligence and liability and so on considered. <laughs> all of those people, uh, if you're close to a university, what, what are the people in that, in the, how, how are the people in that university coming to surround the children with their knowledge? Coming to surround the children's questions on the land with their knowledge so that whatever we may be doing um, moves, again, it's gonna take a little time, but it moves beyond this exercise that's kind of like a one-off activity where we're planting a tree and where the relationship we've developed with the, the, the space around us and in the vicinity of, the, of, of a school starts to be deepened um, and we start to, to move and revolve around how the children are being prepared to live sustainably. And that's the most urgent part of it for me is, is if we didn't end with this final branch, you know, the, the first edition is very clear. Like this, this, is, this isn't just about teaching about nature. This is about the children's survival. It's about what's coming yes. and so i think that final fourth branch for me is going to have to be able we're going to have to be able to demonstrate because we've only waxed i've only waxed poetic about it but we, we're going to have to demonstrate somehow and network how the landscape and the water and other elements in our built environment around us are being transformed through children's questions because children have the freedom to ask questions that adults don't and so um, mm -hmm. an adult can say um, certain things if they're a politician or if they're <laughs> a teacher or if they're uh, a lawyer and so on or a, whatever that can only go so far. An adult cannot say how long, well, they can, we know they're adults asking these questions, but it's rare and, and they're, they tend to be dreamers, not people who are actually going to go out with a shovel and do it. But an adult, an adult find it a lot harder to say, um, how soon can we drink the water from Lake Ontario? Will it take 10 years? Will it take a thousand years? Well, our scientists have to figure that out. And then we structure the learning and the, and the activities around it. So that's, that's, I mean, it sounds just crazy when I say it, but that's the, those are the questions we have to ask. And those are the questions we have to answer. And no politician can ask that question. I mean, find one for me, please. Maybe some people in the Green Party, but I, even, even they tend to be a little bit constrained in, in dreaming that big. But if children are, are convening, um, the thing I really want to avoid is what, you know, what, uh, what, what often happens, which is a child who's 10 starts to hear about climate change and, you know, they run outside the school and start to, to shout at all their, the cars driving by to stop driving. And it's just a, what a helpless feeling that must be yeah, because then oh, you're terrible. Your, your mom or dad is then driving up to take you home. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And it's, just, it's like, that's not helping. So what are we building? And, and if it doesn't seem realistic, then make it real. And I, I think that's where all this, this whole resource is leading. So I'll stop there. And you'll forgive me for going off script, but I'll, I'll ask Julie in the process of working with Doug on this, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the theoretical underpinnings lent themselves very well to the indigenous knowledge and they complemented each other nicely. I, maybe I'm completely misrepresenting that, but I'll let you comment on sort of the process of this, I guess you would call it two-eyed seeing coming together in the creation of the second edition of the book. Yeah. I mean, it was, for me, just so incredibly interesting <laughs> to, you know, I mean, I just found the process just so interesting. And I was learning things all the time and to see that what you thought you were doing could also be viewed in this very this other way that right. it hadn't occurred to you to view again but you say oh yeah that is what i've 
been I or we or that's how we that's what we have been thinking all along, but we didn't quite know it yet, you know. So it was just an incredibly interesting process. And I mean, I think Doug speaks so eloquently about these branches. And I so appreciate that because I always I tend to be a little leery of, um, you know, organizational schema. And which I, you know, especially being in education, which has a way of kind of eating things up and chewing, spitting out the pieces. I just feel it can be really reductive. Oh, and yeah. the way Doug talks, you see how there's also possibilities of openness in this, you know, in these branches. So I love that. I mean, it, it makes it makes me us feel like better people kind of than we knew we were. I think the branches also are like it's useful to see things separately, but really they're so intertwined, those branches, that any one of them kind of circles back to the other sure. the other three. And I think in a way you could almost start the book with any of them even though the metaphor of lighting the fire kind of does make, again, it makes sense of having started with the, um, with the first branch. So I don't know if that's helpful. But... Oh, totally. You have to start where you are, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's a deep book. I'm reading it myself as an educator, um, you know, an external educator who comes in, like you say, for a couple of hours and then gives them back. But that theoretical underpinning that's written in the chapter and then the putting it into practice section. Um, there's a lot to think, a lot to process, a lot to digest. Um, and like you said, some things are resonating, the fact of using circle, that you know, when you're in the classroom of setting up tables to face each other, which of course, I don't know about you, but here we had to stop doing that during the pandemic because they didn't want faces looking at each other and that broke my heart. Yeah, that was tough. Because that eye contact, that lack of eye contact and things. Um, but yeah, these, you know, it, this sounds beautiful and deep, but when you read the book, there's these just really beautiful sort of tabular forms of, of examples and ways that structure have happened and snippets of conversation between kids, which are amazing and hilarious and so informative. And as an educator myself, I used to be very... I mean, obviously, this is a pedagogy, and I used to be very structured, but what the book does is give me a beautiful structure, but it also just helps my imagination and my adaptability. Um, it feels very expansive and, uh, like you said, Julia, open to to interpretation and to flow, and it's, it's, it's just a pleasure to read, but it's not a quick, it's not a quick... <laughs> Well, I'll just, you know, knock that out in two hours. It's a, it's a, it's a journey. Yeah, no, I think that that was one thing. I know as I kept, kept going, I kept saying, this teachers aren't going to want this because we cannot be telling teachers what they should be doing. It's true, but it is nice to be pleasantly surprised. All of the resources featured in this podcast, plus many more, for students and educators alike can be found online at the Outdoor Learning Store. Visit www.outdoorlearningstore.ca to view what's on offer. From waterproof notepads to binoculars and dip nets to sit pads, the store has you covered to take your learning outside. In addition, there are educator resource books to help you take your outdoor education to the highest level. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. We're Canada's non-profit resource store. We are the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network, or CBEEN. You can visit our website at cbeen.ca. We are the regional network for environmental education in the Columbia Basin, supporting a community of engaged and effective environmental educators by connecting them to resources, information, professional development and networking opportunities. So Doug, my question for you is um, like the entire second part of the book is is educator stories from early years to grade six. 
and um I, I mean it means the world to me i am a storyteller like my husband said i'll be a great fisherman because i just tell great stories <laughs> you know i never let let the truth get in the way of a good story um but for me like you know i use puppets i i i like to tell stories in all different spaces get kids to participate in telling stories and i wondered how stories shape learning or whether you've made that connection for both teachers and students and whether or not it was linked to sort of oral indigenous tradition or whether it was just stories are helpful case studies. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I had very, very little, it, nothing much to do with the, the overall structure of the book. So I, I'm, I'm a person who was invited to, you know, to share what I could about uh, an indigenous perspective. But, but I, I will say that I can partially answer your question just by saying that absolutely, I mean, stories <laughs> are how we, how we all understand the world. And um, that, that can be, um, the, you know, the scientific method is a story and, and anything conceivable that, that we may use as a, as a tool for structuring the world around us is a story. But the stories that the teachers are telling, I think are rich because they're, you know, they're sharing something that I, you know, I can't share, and and they're they're also sharing something that the the book in in the first part can't really um, get across in the same way. It's it's someone's personal, you know, um, stab at this, and they're they're it's real. Um, but you know, the the first part of the book is I don't want to reduce it to theory because it's based, it's grounded in practice and it's grounded in research. But um, you know, my, my part of it, the indigenous lens is. Is, is is pretty theoretical because all I'm doing is is putting a lens beside this and and so I I was finding this what the stories do is just give you a a, a solid recognizable piece of an somebody's experience that you can relate to I love this the the um I mean I highlighted this I think within the lens but one of the stories the teachers tells as a as an SK teacher is how children are talking about their I can't remember what the question was anymore but they were talking about their relationships and they're connecting their families and their parents with the sun and the moon and just um, mm. going into a description a shared kind of cir circular description of how they all need to be kind to each other and to be kind to the you know to everything around them and this they were as far as I know they weren't coaxed with an aim of unpacking, you know, some indigenous wisdom, but they did. <laughs> and so children are close to that. And they're, they're, especially sort of when they're younger than seven, they're able to just uh, make um, connections that we're often afraid to make. And, and I thought that was helpful. I mean, if you go into indigenous stories, you will hear how, you know, these other forces around us are our relatives are grandmother moon and so on um yeah mm. to me stories are a way of seeing things from the inside mm. kind of you know yeah, absolutely. Is, and i think that's so important and that's why stories i mean i i don't know this is something i'm extremely interested in but i think there's a way that children listen to stories, especially stories that have the weight of traditional tellings behind them, that it's just a different quality of attention that they're paying. And the questions that follow are a different order of question. So yeah, I think stories are hugely important. I think the teacher stories, and this is where we changed in the second edition, the way they were told, because I think in the first edition, Lorraine really nicely, after a lot of talking with the teachers, she told their stories. Whereas in the second edition, we thought, we're going to let them tell their own stories. We're going to let their voices really come through. And it was like a lot of work. In their spare time. You, know, you, you, you would get 10,000 <laughs> words for something that was supposed to be 2,000. And it was a lot of editing. But what I think was so neat about it is I think it just shows how this these kind of, again, these kind of abstract ideas that are in the other part of the book come to life in so many different kinds of ways. 
you know, it just shows, you know, there's not one way and they're not dictating a way. And there's such an enormous diversity of practices when you actually look at real teachers working with real kids in real classrooms, in real situations that really brings it all to life and shows how it's possible, you know. Amazing. One of my favorites, it's just a, um, a, a transcript of a conversation between two students. And it's, you know, there's a note that says, like, I resisted the urge to interrupt. They came with like a, sho- a rusty, broken shovel. And it's the conversation between them about, yeah. Yeah. you know, oh, it's broken, it's trash, we've got to throw it away. So they talk about value. And then one of the kids is talking about the fact that it's iron and it's in our blood yeah. and minerals. It's like, you know, science and we are nature. And it's just like hilarious. They're like, let's just go and hide it so nobody else has to deal with it, you know? And they just scuttle <laughs> yeah. off to do their own. And it just made my heart because I get to experience, and when you experience some of those conversations yourself, like all of the stress of lesson planning or all of the worry that you're, you know, not looking after their social emotional well-being or whatever, like you hear those kind of conversations and you just warm from the inside out of like, they've got it sorted. You've got a practical kid, you've got a problem solver, you've got an optimist, they're going to rule the world and it's going to be fantastic. Just quickly about stories, I want to, I do want to share that we are at the lab school looking at what stories can be shared and how we share them and what, Mm. you know, how do you identify what's not been sort of made up or watered down or pilfered when it comes to Indigenous stories. And it's a big challenge for a lot of teachers. It's good if you have a librarian who's, who's able to sort of figure out who wrote it and how they got the story. Um, it's a it's a different side of this question, but I think it was implied when you asked it. And a, a lot of the, I mean, what we're doing right now is we're sitting outside telling stories, and we're finding that the questions that are coming out of those telling some of those stories, and we're lighting an actual fire, um, which not all, not everyone has the freedom to do, but we found a spot to do it. But we're finding that some of the indigenous stories that have been made widely available if we're able to talk to people who who hold those traditions and establish the comfort level and you know say why we want to share this some of those stories that exist in whatever region you live in um, it's good to have relationships with people who hold the stories because it's not I don't think of it it's not like property but it it is definitely there are uh, often certain values and protocols attached to 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 the knowledge that sort of is embedded in it. And people are careful and worried about how it might just get reduced or, or radically just turned into something else. Having said all that, it, if there are ways to sort of pull these things out and begin to uh, explore them with children, what you'll find is a lot of them are about the world they're in yeah, and that they're in the story. So uh, Isaac Murdoch, he, he's a uh, Gizik is a, He's an Anishinaabe man who's, you know, he's come in and told stories in different in different school systems, to school boards in different places. And he's, a, he's always telling the children, you know, you're in this story. He tells everyone, you're in this story. And so the same, it's the same way that teachers will see themselves in the stories that, that other teachers are telling. This, some of the things that if we can really understand them and take the time to, to spend time with them, um, and, and also establish relationships, ethical relationships with Indigenous people in the place where you live, in the, in the area you live in. Um, invite them if you can. There's a, a depth of knowledge held in these uh, stories that I would describe, if we can only describe it as the actual original laws of the, the place we're in. They're, again, it's knowledge flowing from, so stories can help us connect with knowledge that doesn't, that is integrated. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Stoked on Science, providing engaging, educational, and fun programs across the Columbia Basin. Is your school or organization looking to develop your environmental programming? Connect your outdoor time more deeply to the curriculum, or engage your students or teachers with unique programs that go beyond the basic science topics, like delving into the history of the Earth, how it's changed, and where it's going. If so, visit www.stokedonscience.org.
onscience.com to connect for environmental education consulting or to book programs for your K-12 and adult professional development courses. Forgive me for going off script again. I have a very bad habit of doing that, but connecting to next steps, and Doug, you mentioned about making more meaningful relationships and connections with Indigenous members of whichever community a person is in, how can we continue walking forward? I know it's not the sort of thing where you just check the boxes and you're done. It's an ongoing process, but where do we need to go next? That's uh, another podcast, but I... I, I just, well, yeah. no, honestly, yeah. It is. No, no, for I, sure. I, I, and I and we say, very well could do so. <laughs> yeah, it, it, depends on where you, it depends on where you live. And it depends on the... I mean, one thing I just want to say right up front is it, it's problematic to ask any Indigenous person who may be a student or a parent or someone in the, in the, in the you know, in the vicinity that you know, you're aware of to help with it because a lot of this was beaten out of, out of us. And so... It's, it's just an awkward thing to be asked if, you, if you're not carrying it. But having said that, um, there are, I know in school boards in this region, there are people who I think are generally pretty good at, at helping facilitate how all this might evolve. And that's their job. And they've been hired by different school boards to help with it. So I, I want to make sure that people are aware that, you know, depending where you live, this may be possible um, with someone who's actually, that's their job. It may not. And so what, what <laughs> values exist in any story that you can find? Um, there's uh, something I think we don't have is a level of, and I include myself in this in the way that I was educated, and is a level of literacy is the wrong word, but discernment with regard to what the quality of, a, of any story is. And so <laughs> we can... You know, I, I, I like Robert Munch. He's great. But, you know, the, the laws of the universe are that you're going to you know, get out of uh, a really fun Robert Munch story are pretty limited. But if, if you're able to uh, look at some traditional folk stories, which, you know, nowadays maybe have to be censored. <laughs> yes, but, diluted but, um, a little. <laughs> yeah, diluted a little. But they, they, they hold profound truths if, if we're able to discern that. Do most of us have the, the sort of the literary wherewithal to, to have that discernment? I think a lot of teachers may, um, but maybe a lot of us don't. And that's not through any fault of our own. It's, it's, the, it's the kind of race we've had away from traditional knowledge. Um, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. So those, the importance of stories, I'm sort of rambling on, but um, it's not like if you don't have Indigenous resource people and you don't have a budget because, you know, you, you don't want to call in everyone, sort of people who, who do hold deep Indigenous knowledge or elders, probably the, it's not the best place to use them is, is going, spreading them across public school systems. They, we need that knowledge in our own communities. Now some of them will come out, right? That happens. But um, yeah, it's good to, it's, it's, so there are stories everywhere from around the world. And I think really good teachers are already using them. And that's important. That's a good, a good way to help, help children come to the, these fires and these conversations with Indigenous people. For sure. And Julie, anywhere that your work is going or where you see could be a next potential step in this ongoing journey of environmental inquiry? Oh, well, um, Another whole know, podcast. Every, <laughs> another whole <laughs> podcast and, and everything kind of got derailed by um, COVID. I mean, well, the yes, projects that we were, yeah, I know, which is a given, but it's a reality. I mean, I think I think we're in early. I do think we're in early stages of you know, of all this work, and I think even, but you know, when I think of even where we were, what five years ago or whenever the book came out, I think we were in such early stages then. So I think you know. I think we've moved forward in our awareness. And I think in the students I teach now, these teacher candidates, you know, you if you talked a few years ago, I teach a science education course. If you talked even like three years ago, when you did about indigenous ways of knowing things, you would get a lot of disgruntlement and 
that's fine, that's nice, but we need to learn the science, we need to teach the kids. And they respond totally differently now. They respond with interest, they respond with awe, they respond with relief, and find they find connections with these ways of knowing that they never did manage to find with conventional science, you know? So I do think things are happening, but I think we're still in very early stages. And I think, I was just gonna to add to that. I think people are uh, slowly, in, indigenous people who hold deep wells of, of traditional knowledge are sl probably slowly starting to emerge in ways that will, will surprise people. There's mathematical knowledge, there's historical, like that goes way back. There are calendars, there are from this part of the world, not just Mayan calendars, and they had to be hidden. And so, for, I mean, even as something as simple as uh, corn, which is one of thousands of plants that, 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 have, that, that there's deep knowledge about. I mean, there are hundreds of varieties of, of corn that have been held quietly. And so it's not all mystical, right? it's also empirical. And I think the more people are, are able to sort of cross these, op open these doors and, and cross into each other's worlds and have these conversations, the more we be, may be able to access and support that, that knowledge and keep it alive because we need yeah. it. And the more I read about traditional ecological knowledge, um, it, it makes so much sense. Everything makes logical. sense. Even, and even the allegorical creation stories from like the two nations that I, that I have learned, it, it just, it's so descriptive and I can't, I can't I'm, not, I'm not articulate enough to find the right words, but, it, but I recognize it I, in the landscape around me. I recognize it in the living things and the non-living things. I recognize it in the way it makes me feel when I'm in this space. And it's a very deep, deep connection. And I'm, I'm so grateful. And you're right, when you decimate a culture, you destroy the capacity for sharing and uh, I had a local knowledge keeper cultural representative uh, of, a, of a first nation here say like you said people are embarrassed because if you ask and they don't know because that was taken from them it's a huge weaving and and um, building relationships that you know building trust that yeah, I was torn apart. And um, all I know is that the more I learn, the more I realize that it is all one. It's all, all of the information, you know, scientific, traditional, it is, it's all part of the same energetic giving of, of, of a gift. And it, it the more I learn, the, the happier, the happier I feel to connect into that and feel grateful for that gift. Um, whenever it comes well we have been chatting for longer than we were <laughs> and I feel like we could talk um for uh yeah days and days about this and you know you've sold 13,000 copies since the book was published in 2018 in this store where you can find this uh resource we are we just sold copies to South Korea uh to the Netherlands to the UK so despite you know like you say the focus around Ontario it is relevant across Turtle Island it's relevant across the world and um it's an amazing resource if you haven't had a look at it and you're an educator it's a journey on discovery for yourself as an educator but also as a person uh, connecting to the land so um I highly recommend it and I'd just like to say thank you so much for sharing uh, your stories and your uh care and knowledge with us today Thank you. I also want to thank Julie and Lorraine. And I've only met Lorraine maybe once. I know Julie better because those are the educators who are making these conversations possible. And there's a, there's a lot of, it wasn't easy to get here and they've done a lot of important work to get us there. So yes, thank you to my colleagues. So good to have had that door opened. <laughs> Well, thank you, everyone. This was a pleasure. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Thank you so much for joining us for this month's Earthy Chat. 
You can find the resources featured in this podcast at the Outdoor Learning Store. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. You can also visit greenteacher.com for incredible educational resources and webinars. And cbean, that's c-b-e-e-n.org for a range of environmental resources, including professional development opportunities, grant information, and green jobs. Lastly, you can visit www.stotonscience.com to chat with me, Jade, about science workshops or educational consulting. Tune in next month for more cross-pollination of ideas and another fun, earthy chat. Looks like we've we've lost Julie temporarily. Her mute doesn't seem to be mute doesn't seem to be on. Yeah, no. mute the Zoom. Zoom mute is not on. I'm assuming you can edit. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, oh, this, this can all be ironed out, no problem.